Okay, guys, we are back. Sports Law 101, a podcast for for guys like us. I'm Ryan McLaughlin. I'm a lawyer and... Hi, my name's Aiden Checkett. I'm a student at St. Olaf College and I'm a huge sports fan and a prospective potential lawyer. So this is episode one. This is our premiere episode. And today we are going to be taking a look at something that blows my mind. I'm just ridiculously fascinated by this lawsuit. It's about equal pay. It's about discrimination. It's women fighting against um, U.S. soccer. And so Aiden will, t- will kind of, since I don't know anything about sports, he's going to kind of present the, like, let's go 60 seconds. What's the 60 second story for those people who are out there who just have like zero idea of what this news item is, and then we'll, we'll kind of unpack it from there. Yeah, so the USWNT, or the US Women's National Team, is the soccer team that represents uh, the US at the international stage. It's incredibly successful. They've won four World Cups and two Olympic championships, and really popular, well-known athletes like Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe. So, a few key players um, led by those two actually sued U.S. soccer, claiming that U.S. soccer violated major legal agreements and that they were discriminated against because of their gender. And their two major concerns were that they were paid insufficiently compared to the men and that they were subject to inferior working conditions when it came to things like playing on the right kind of field, accommodations, or even flights. Got it. So paid less and significantly less quality accommodations, flights, fields, to name two. Got it. So that's what they allege. And what's the status of the suit today? And today we're recording on June 23rd, 2020. So where are we? Tuesday, June 23rd, 2020 at 412. What's the status of the suit? Yeah. So things are still a little bit in limbo, it seems. Um, There was originally supposed to be a trial scheduled in early May that has kept getting pushed back because of COVID. The one major legal situation we have had has been there was hearing with a judge who ruled on each of the different claims. And so he threw out everything with regards to the Equal Pay Act about the pay claims, but he did hold that there was merit to a couple of Title VII claims with regards to flights and fields. So those are still circulating through the justice system and we're still waiting for resolution on those. Yeah, that is my understanding as well. So say that one more time. So the equal, so the fields and um, flights, what's the claim there? Cause that's the claim that survived. What is, so they got, they get crappier, presumably they play on crappier fields and they get what, like yeah, so- flights? So with the fields, the issue is that soccer is one of the sports where it really matters the surface you play on, and it's so much better to play on a grass field. But obviously, a lot of facilities in the U.S. are turf fields because of, you know, the primacy of football in this country, American football, that is. So the U.S. men's team has played on grass fields almost exclusively, but the women have had to play on turf fields at a much higher rate in the country. Um, and with regards to the flights, that has to do with whether you're flying on like a commercial flight or a charter flight. And the men have been play- flying on almost exclusively charter flights, and the women have had to fly on some 
commercial flights for friendlies and a couple of even like actual competitive games over the last few years. Okay, that is bogus. So I've done a little bit of research to prepare for this episode. And so, but beyond that, my wife is, was a college soccer coach. So I got to witness, we, and we went to the World Cup that was in Canada a few years ago. We went to several of the, the matches, including the finals. And so I'm, I'm a little bit familiar from a spectator standpoint, but I do know the turf and the turf, the turf's a huge deal. So for non-soccer fans, um, I'm not going to expound on and like wax on turf, but like every time you, you should see a picture of the women's legs after playing 90 minutes. I mean, it's just brutal, like sliding, tackling, falling, the damage you take to your legs. And it's like road rash. It's like falling on cement. Um, yeah. I mean, way hotter. Even at a, at a personal, you know, kind of anecdotal level, I was a sprinter all throughout high school and through part of college. And so I didn't even compete on grass or turf, but just the difference in sitting down and recovering on turf, it's just horrible. I mean, it's hot, it gets to you. You know, like Ryan said, it literally leaves imprints in your leg. It's like a terrible material to use for anything unless sports, besides sports that are literally the need turf. So, so the fact that, you know, we have professional athletes representing our country playing on this material is pretty pretty disturbing i agree from a, i agree right but but my question and the legal lens is what's the legal basis i agree let, let's just agree that turf sucks it's not optimal but from my understanding the reason the discrimination and equal pay claim was dismissed was because there was a collective bargaining agreement in which they agreed, they being the women's national team, agreed with representation, with a bargaining agreement to their salary, right? So the claim that they could be treated unequally or, or, or discriminated against is, is, was dismissed by the court because of that CBA. Now, how does this claim about the fields and the flights, I understand the complaint, but how does it survive the same logic? Yeah, so... Basically, what's needed for these to be upheld is that there cannot be a compelling argument besides discrimination for why U.S. soccer would have given them these conditions. And U.S. soccer is claiming for a variety of reasons, primarily financial, that they women were receiving these conditions not because of their gender, but because with regards to the turf, um, the women's national team has been pushing to play all over the country um, in their victory tour after winning the last World Cup. They wanted to play friendlies in a wide variety of locations across the country at a relatively short-term notice. And a lot of these games would not necessarily be bringing in a ton of revenue, according to U.S. soccer. So they claimed that because of the short notice and because of the lack of revenue, it just wasn't feasible at both a practical and financial level to convert these fields into turf. Says the U.S. Says the U.S. soccer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they have to have a reason. So is it, so the U.S. soccer says no gr real grass because not economical. Is that the basic idea? Yeah, essentially that they don't want, they can't convert turf fields into grass fields. And that's- short -term and that's a reason, so basically the reason is money, and money is a reason other than sex, so they avoid, so, so how does that, 
why did that claim survive the motion for summary judgment? Right? Like, why is the court still interested in that claim? I think essentially the judge just deemed it insufficient. And part of that might have to do with the underlying rationale for why the U.S. women's national team brings in, you know, arguably less money for certain games. And just the argument that, I mean, the men are receiving, you know, these bonuses for games that are not profitable. There are a lot of arguments for the men receiving these things because of competitive reasons, because the men essentially need it more because they're more at risk of not qualifying for major tournaments and not, you know, and these games, these friendlies are more vital for them. And I think that is an argument which is pretty clearly rooted in gender as well. So I think the judge, well, he did, again, he didn't rule in favor of the women on this issue. He denied summary judgment to the defendant on these claims because I think the judge recognized that there was a lot more at play than sort of objective financial concerns. Yeah, so the facts on the record, the pleadings that have been entered thus far, all of the facts are not sufficient to rule as a matter of law that U.S. soccer is free and clear, scotch free. So the judge says there is a possibility that the U.S. soccer argument is bogus, that they're not, that, that, that U.S. soccer is given the women turf because they're sexist, because they're discriminatory, and not because of money. The, the judge saying that's an issue of fact, then we're going to proceed with this. I think that, I think that's what that, that is what that, that, that stands for. Um, so let's go to that. Do you know, have you, do you have any research about women versus men? And the women I know, performance wise, crush the men. They've won virtually every high profile match, their, their victory levels destroy the men. So what is their revenue generation like? Yeah, so this is sort of a, a complicated thing because it's pretty clear that independent of the total sort of paradigm of women's soccer and men's soccer, the women bring in a much higher percentage of revenue. But the, the unfortunate thing is that men's soccer is so much bigger national internationally than women's soccer that the pool prizes are so much smaller in women's soccer compared to men's soccer but what about so dollar for in terms dollar? of dollar for dollar and then we'll get to the other argument because i think the other argument about where you were going with yeah women's soccer being um a big fish in a small pond but men's soccer being a little fish, meaning they're a crappy team in a, in a huge pond or a pond of huge fish. I, I see that. Like there's, there's it, it may be comparing apples to oranges, but still, like, I want to know if we have the data, what do the women generate for U.S. soccer versus the men? Yeah, so what I'm seeing is that women are actually bringing in slightly more money. Um, there was a Wall Street Journal article that said that between 2016 and 2018, so I think that's most of the period that the lawsuit is sort of entail, that lawsuit entails, the women brought in $51 million of revenue compared to $50 million of revenue for the men. That's, so, what I, that's yeah. the number that I heard as well, which is super yeah. interesting. Yeah, um, one thing that I wanted to get into that I think is really interesting at the crux of this is those CBAs, those bargaining agreements, because 
the one thing that's interesting about this is that so the women and the men, despite the fact that both teams are, you know, working under U.S. soccer, negotiate, like Ryan said, negotiate different agreements. And those agreements are pretty radically different in their structure. The men's bargaining agreement is rooted pretty much entirely in bonuses, like payments to players for winning games, for performing well in tournaments. Um, whereas the women's agreement actually has a base salary of I believe $100,000 yeah which goes towards a select roster of women but then the bonuses that they receive are much smaller so what I find really fascinating about this is that if the men were playing under the women's bargaining agreement they would have made more on average because they were less successful but they, there's that base salary for the women. But if the women were playing under the men's agreement, they would have made drastically more because they would have raked in all those performance bonuses that the men didn't because of their lack of international success. So, so draw the, connect the dots for us. So what is that? So, what, so if the women played under the men's collective bargaining agreement, they would have raked in the money because they've been killing it, winning the 20, they've been killing all the turn. If the men played under the women's, they'd be horrible because they don't get any bonuses. Is that right? Horribly paid? No, if the men played under the women, the men would actually be better paid than they are right now because the women's um, bargaining agreement has that high fixed salary. Got it. So um, what, what, what I think the, sorry, go on. What sense do you make of that? Like, why is that? What sense do we make of that? I think... The cynical way to view, which I think I'm kind of suspect to, is that U.S. soccer knew what was going to happen at a competitive level because there's, you know, a decades-long tradition of this. And they knew that the women were going to be more internationally successful than the men. And so this fixed salary thing, while offering kind of low-level financial security for the players, would save U.S. soccer money in the long run because they wouldn't have to pay these massive dolls to the women even when they were really successful. Um, I know that there was a lot of dispute and controversy during the last couple CBA cycles for the women. And I think a lot of the complaints were lodged during the process. I think even this lawsuit was originally filed during the last CBA bargaining agreement. So there's been clearly a lot of discord since the very beginning. But I think kind of to sum it back up is that this is really rooted in U.S. soccer making a cynical business first decision. So the women seem to be limited in what they can um, complain about by the four corners of the collective bargaining agreement, which they enter entered into freely, knowingly, and voluntarily, which seems to be contract 101. You signed a contract, you made this bargain. So if you don't like it, that's unfortunate. But unless there was a gun to your head, unless you're, you know, you didn't have capacity, which they clearly did. So as a legal matter, as I view this, and I'm not sure that this is, and I'm curious what you think, but as a legal matter, I view this as, look, ladies or men or anybody who's negotiating with anybody, and I'm curious to see if this applies when we talk about the NBA and then NFL and going back and COVID, look, use the muscle of the group and negotiate what you want. And it seems to me, 
I think that the, the lawsuit component of this is a PR. It's certainly generating attention. We're talking about it. So it's successful in that regard. And I see it, I see it being tactical in that regard. But how is this anything other than if you want better fields, use the leverage of the group to bargain for it. If you want more money, use the leverage of the group to bargain for it. If you don't get it, walk out, strike, et cetera, and make them make U.S. soccer feel it financially. Is it yeah. more complicated than that? Well, I think I agree with you with regards to the pay and the CBA. I think with regards to the flights and the fields and accommodations, I think it's a little more nuanced because I'm not entirely sure that that stuff is really kind of legislated in the CBA. I think that's a lot of the time decided on a more ad hoc basis. For sure. But I, I totally agree. And I think one thing that's really frustrating about this is that numerous U.S. men's national team players have come out in support of the women and, you know, argued that, you know, they're in the right and they deserve to be hate more. But I think that there could be a lot more done on that front. And I think that that's sort of a message for, you know, men as a whole that, we need to, you know, use the political capital and the economic capital that we have and really kind of put ourselves out there and advocate for equal pay for, you know, women and other groups which have historically been paid less and to not just kind of give lip service. But, you know, I don't know if more full-fledged support from the men would have, you know, tipped skills, Do you but I certainly don't think it could have hurt it. Do you have a sense of how much involvement the players have in the union? In other words, I don't know the names of men's players, but like if there's four dominant or two or one, are they vocal enough to actually sway the others? Because yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice to see both men and women unions collectively exert muscle and pressure and and maybe something and maybe something like look if the men generate a hundred grand and the women generate 200 grand, we're going to like, whatever it is, the men and women are going to split total collective earnings 50, 50, half of all us soccer, whether it's generated by men, generated by women go equally. It'd be nice to see whether or not that proposition is adopted. It would be nice to see some united action, whatever that be on whatever level. So um, my question to you, though, was, like, practically speaking, with the unions, how does it operationalize? Do the men actually, can they just, I mean, is it just like they go on Twitter and they tweet? Or, I mean, do you know the structure, practically, of, the u- of unions and action? Yeah, so I'm going to be completely honest. I don't know in depth kind of how the CBA process works. I think most of what we've seen has just been that kind of Twitter activism you're alluding to. And I definitely think that, you know, the U.S. men's national team, their players, and, you know, consequentially their attorneys could put a lot more pressure on U.S. soccer through the CBA process. Um, I I have no idea whether that's been done. Personally, I doubt it has, but I don't think, you know, I haven't been in that room. You haven't been in that room. I'm not sure if any of us can say for certain whether that has been done, but... I, you know, again, I think that would be fantastic, everything you said. Do you see the men more active or the women from a vocalization on like, because this is activism, it is, it is politics, it is the intersection of sports and law and politics and culture. Do you see the women more vocal than the men? Absolutely, on pretty much every front of 
activism and kind of issues in modern America. I will give one caveat. I think pretty unusually for sports, U.S. women's national soccer team players are better known than their male counterparts. I think apart from Christian Pulisic, who plays for Chelsea, I doubt the average American sports fan could name more than one or two U.S. You know, U.S. Men's, men's national team player, whereas I think both Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe are household names. So, you know, to the extent that I, just like anyone else, I'm just kind of a, you know, a passive consumer of this stuff, it's very possible that there has been more kind of outspoken activism among people on the men's team, but it certainly hasn't been getting, you know, that level of attention. And I think a more coerced, consistent effort probably could get us there, though. So wrapping up, I think as we forecast forward, you mentioned in the beginning that that sort of progress in court has been slow because of COVID. I think going forward, what we're going to see with the surviving claims about travel and field uh, is going to be settlement talks, confidential settlement talks, and what that really means is money and how much money. I think the demand was $67 million. Um, I don't know how much of that the U.S. women will be able to recover but I think it will go down to the brass tacks of numbers. To me, that's not the interesting question. To me, the interesting question is how we move forward and how much, how emboldened the women feel in terms of what they should demand in the collective bargaining arena. And this is really the take home point. I think they're providing a fantastic example for all groups of people is that first, you need to unite. Second, you need to provide list of demands. And third, you need to feel confident enough that you can really bring an organization to its knees if you don't feel justly dealt with. And in fact, if you don't do that, when it matters, you may have little recourse, right? Now they've been in this lawsuit. Do you know how long they've been in this lawsuit when, it first, when they first filed? I can't remember the exact date. I'll look it up. I know it's been years. So it's June. We're in June 2020. If this was filed, let's get the date when it was filed. Yeah, it was the first news article. Is, it's got to be at least a year. So we're a year in. Is that fair? Yeah. And I know there's been, you know, I, I think there was an injunction filed in maybe 2016 or 2017 originally. So the whole legal process has been going on for years. I, I just found it. The, the actual lawsuit was filed in March of 2019. So we're going on you know, a year and three months, possibly a year and a half by the time this whole thing has settled. So it's been, it's been a long fight. Yeah. So if there is a settlement, right, if there's a settlement and I don't know what numbers are on the table, but a year of attorney's fees, I mean, it's not cheap for whatever attorneys they're using. I don't know what the attorney arrangement is, but, but I think it's just a lesson in look, contracts are important. They're enforced. That's, that's why the judge dismissed the, the equal pay claim. And I think, you know, everything from lease agreements to employment agreements to tuition, you know, even something like if you're going to get married in COVID times, you want to make sure that there's a refund policy and that you're comfortable with it. And if not, you vote with your dollars and you walk away. I think here's just an illustration of contract law 101. And if you don't feel like you have bargaining power, that might be the case. And maybe you need to, you know, unionize. I think it's a huge lever, a huge, huge muscle. Uh, anything we missed? Anything that we just like completely glossed over that we should address? Yeah, I, I think we pretty much got everything. The one thing I did want to touch on a little bit is just how surprised I was to find out how independent U.S. soccer and Team USA in general 
are of the US as a whole. I think we're the only, maybe there are a couple others, but one of the only countries in the world that doesn't fund um, you know, our, our international competitive athletes through the government and there's not really a whole lot of government regulation. So that's why I think it's sort of confusing because I think there's sort of a general sense that we're dealing with, you know, a government organization or at least a national organization, but we're really dealing with, you know, essentially like a private entity. And I think that might be a conversation we want to have about whether we want these people who are so important to our country to, you know, at an international level and who we represent us to be so sort of beholden to private interests and so sort of away from the public domain. But I think, you know, in a broader sense, that's a conversation that goes beyond the scope of this lawsuit. And there's definitely something to take home, I think. Yeah, interesting. So you're making the point that while we call it US national soccer, it's actually a private, it's a national team, but it's, and, and it's arguably a public good, but it's a private matter. And it's beholden yeah. to corporate interests effectively. Exactly, which is, I think, pretty unsettling to me personally. But, you know, obviously everyone's welcome to their own take on that. Yeah, interesting. And that would, I think that yeah, that's a, we could go down that. I think that's an interesting path because people, um, critics often say the same thing about Olympians and how the Olympics really are just a giant kind of parade for corporate corporate sponsorships and the athletes are more or less like just disregarded entities kind of you know barbarians yeah, absolutely for their, for their muscle um awesome that was great that was that was a super fantastic as <clears throat> it's always good for me like the legal terrain that we covered you know it might not it's not an it's not it's perhaps not the status quo standard expectation of a um five course lecture that you might find in law school but i think it's 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 an illustration of what's really happening in the world and the legal issues that emerge from them and that's the goal of the podcast is to talk about the law and sports in a way that makes sense so hopefully everybody gets some value out of this if you do stay tuned subscribe we will have episode two coming out soon topic tbd so stay tuned share if you dig and we'll see you guys next time peace